and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. First and foremost, remember to check those show notes for trigger warnings before you dive into the episode. One announcement, I will be a part of the season finale live stream for the Let's Not Meet podcast. Andrew Tate was so kind to ask me to participate, so I filmed a segment and I'll be in the chat hanging out. Other guests are Sapphire Sandalo from Stories with Sapphire and Soren Narnia from Knife Point Horror. So I'm an excellent company, as you can see. The stream will be on Twitch at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Sunday, May 24th. I will put the link in the show notes, but if you go to twitch.tv slash let's not meet streams, you'll find it. And I really hope to see you guys there. Like I said, I will be in the chat hanging out and I filmed a little segment. I hope you enjoy. Now let's get on with the show, shall we? First up this week, we have another story from author Lydia H., who you may remember from their suffocating story a few weeks ago called Dirt. This week, Lydia brings us a thought-provoking tale called Couldn't Be Me. There were a lot of things wrong with the Willow House. Of course, I never said that out loud. Potential buyers for this house were hard to come by. And every open house, I did all I could to gloss over the apparent age and wear of the house with words like homey, cozy, and old-fashioned. There weren't even any willows on the property. At least, not anymore. Ken told me that the beautiful trees were cut down in 06 thanks to an irate neighbor. Every house owner after that didn't bother to do anything with the bare, torn-up front lawn, other than water it every now and then, and hope for the best. It was a shame, really. The trees had shaded the front half of the house, making the light blue of the siding look charming and whimsical. Whoever lived there at the time put a stone birdbath under the long branches of the willow trees, and tiny brown birds relished in the cold water. With the willows and the birdbath, the house looked charming, as if out of a fairy tale. Of course, Ken updated the picture for the listing after we renovated it. It was now a sandy beige color, the front lawn replaced with white rocks that bordered around various types of desert shrubs. Ken had wanted stucco to match the rest of the beachy Southern Californian homes on the street, but refused to fork over the amount quoted to him. We'll just paint it beige. It'll be close enough. He'd run his hand through his hair, frizzing it out with his fingers. It was a habit I grew to hate. He'd only do it right before an angry, self-righteous tangent. We're already scraping the barrel for the AC. Straight out of the 70s. Can you believe that not one of the previous owners bothered to check on that fucking thing? Unbelievable. Leave all the hard work for the little guys. Jesus. I would just nod and sigh. Ken knew damn well he wasn't one of the little guys. He'd inherited his father's real estate company two years after we got married. Of course, he didn't care what I had to say. Or think. I was just there to be a pretty face. To sway a potential buyer who was on the fence. I'd say, spacious ceilings! With an extra charming smile. 
make a slightly risque joke about sunbathing naked on the poolside. I'd thrown away plenty of business cards given back to me with a handwritten phone number. The afternoon sun glared into my eyes as I stood outside. The red and white open house sign taunted me from the front yard. It had been a really slow day, and I was all but ready to go home and take a cold shower. None of my potential buyers were particularly interested, and I wasn't wasting my breath hoping one of them would contact me with an offer. Even I had to admit, the house was boring. Even with a brand new working AC system and a renovated kitchen, the house had little to offer. It was a gaudy, bright exterior trying to mask the old, mysterious framework. The history, even in the scorching sun. The thought made me shiver. I glanced down at my phone. Ken had not replied to my message. He was supposed to pick me up from the Willow House at 5. And yes, it was only 4.30, but it was hot and I was tired and... I didn't want to spend any more time inside that chilling place. This house honestly reminded me of Ken's father, when I was forced to golf with him and his work buddies. The house had the same vibe as Ken Sr. Handsy, suffocating, fake. There was something wrong with it, and knowing its history, I was glad we lived several towns over. I looked at my notifications again. Nothing from Ken. I was getting impatient, and the sweat dripping down my temples and into my freshly pressed blazer was dry-humping a nerve I didn't know I had. In the back of my mind, I knew Ken wouldn't even bother looking at his phone until well past five, and it was fruitless for me to hold out hope for Ken being a decent husband. The humidity was starting to make my hair frizz, ruining the perfect blowout Ken expected me to maintain. I pushed back several curly strands that were matted to my forehead, and debated which was worse, going into the house to cool down while I waited for Ken, or letting people see me, Mrs. Ken Williams, with my natural hair. Who was I kidding? If Ken saw me with less than perfect hair next to a for sale sign with his face on it, he'd have a fit. I knew he would. Giving the sign one last wrathful glance, I turned around and headed up the driveway towards the house. Oh god, it was so much nicer inside. Ken's brand new AC was working great. The door gave way to a small tiled foyer and opened to a sitting room, flocked on two sides with huge windows that were covered by light beige curtains letting only small strips of light dance on the carpeted floors. A coffee table sat amidst two brown leather couches, displaying carefully selected magazines and a small vase of tulips. The couches were calling my name. I could hear it in the way my toes ached painfully against my heels. Getting comfortable in the house wasn't my first choice of action, but my feet guided me to the sitting room and came to rest on the edge of the coffee table. Ugh. A small sigh of delight escaped my lips as I sunk into the couch cushion. At least the couches were comfortable. I leaned back into the cushion, 
I needed to remind Ken that my feet definitely were not a size 7. They were closer to a size 9. I picked up my phone. Nothing from Ken. Of course. It wouldn't be a problem if he'd just let you drive, chided a voice in my head. I'd brought it up to him before, but he'd waited until my license expired and said it was too bothersome to renew it, to add me as a driver on our insurance, to pick out a car for me. A woman should be chauffeured around, he quoted, probably mimicking his father. He meant it as a good thing, as some sort of honest act of chivalry, like I should be flattered. I wasn't. But of course, as was his nature, he didn't care. I opened my camera app catching a glimpse of my face, nearly folded into the cushions. God, I looked like a wreck. My mascara was almost melting off my lashes. Did I forget to set my face with powder this morning? Maybe it was just the sweat, making my skin glisten in the afternoon light. My beautiful brown girl, my mama would say. I smiled to myself, snapping a picture. I didn't have anyone to send it to and Ken wouldn't appreciate it. It was just for myself, I guess, to remind myself that I still existed. Chloe Williams, the perfect half to the Ken Williams Realtor Group. Although, was it perfect? I looked at the selfie I just took, studying it. I was all too aware of the difference in mine and Ken's skin tone, and his name, Ken he looked like his namesake. An American smile on a perfectly sculpted face, bright blue eyes, big shoulders, long legs. Of course, he played football in high school, was prom king, captain of the debate team. He was smart, charming, witty, and I had fallen in love with him. Had. We'd get the joke a lot. Where's your Barbie kin? Tipsy moms from his yacht club thought they were hilarious, all of them looking like the next. I stood out like a sore thumb. Ken told me he didn't care that I was taller than him, but I think they did. They were all trying to resemble Barbie, all of them fake blonde, straight from their soul cycle class and all vying for his attention. It was ridiculous, really. I looked up from my phone and around the sitting room. I didn't think we were going to sell this house. We don't have to disclose anything unless they ask specifically, Ken had assured me. If they don't ask, don't say anything. I couldn't stop thinking about it, though. I got up from my position on the couch, leaving my heels on the floor. Through the sitting room was the kitchen freshly painted, and then the dining room. On the left, a small hallway led to a series of bedrooms. On the right was the laundry room. And then... the garage. The garage. A shiver ran through my spine as I stood there. I hadn't really shown any of the potential buyers inside only acknowledging its existence and passing. Morbid curiosity got the best of me. I found myself walking through the laundry room, 
turning the knob and stepping down onto the concrete floor of the garage. It was stuffy and hot. I flipped on the singular light bulb which illuminated a small two-car garage with a fresh coat of white paint. On the left was a small work table and a board for tools. The garage doors had been metal throughout with no windows and reinforced on the inside with haphazardly put-together wood when we bought it. The concrete floors had been bleached, then power-washed, but the pictures remained on the police reports. She was chained to the middle of the floor in the garage. It was a bolt driven into the concrete that held down a metal shackle, just short enough so she couldn't bang on the garage door. We'd filled the hole the first day of renovations. I can still see the little imperfection in the concrete. I stepped a couple more steps into the center of the garage. She sat there, covered in her own filth. He'd burned the bottom of her feet so she couldn't run, so she depended on him to get around. When she acted out in any way, he'd shave her head and make her wear his clothes, all too large and frumpy on her. If she asked for anything, begged for anything, when he wasn't in the mood, he would beat her with a golf club until the bloodstains became permanent. I shivered again thinking about the grisly images Ken had dug up. He'd read the case out loud to me one morning before announcing that it was our next house. I had the decency then not to say anything. My phone dinged, startling me out of a stupor. It was Ken. How many times do I have to tell you, don't fucking text me when I'm at work? And then, Carl will come get you. I started back towards the house to put my heels back on and fix my hair, taking one last look at the garage. It bothered me, really, that after all that, after all the abuse she'd suffered at the hands of this horrible man, she'd cried. She refused to testify against him and pleaded for the charges to be dropped. He was sentenced to life without parole. And the next day, she killed herself. I hurried back towards the house, locking the garage door behind me. In the sitting room, I forced my feet into the two small heels, tottering to the mirror to smooth down my hair and dab at my makeup. Carl, our driver, could not see me in a state less than perfect. Carl wouldn't care, of course, but Ken would. I saw our car pull up on the curb as I stepped through the doorway and locked the house. I carefully made my way down the driveway and opened the passenger door of our G-Wagon, embracing the cold burst of the car AC. Hey, Mrs. Williams, Carl greeted me, waiting for me to buckle my seatbelt before pulling away from the curb and onto the road. How was the showing? He asked conversationally once we were on the freeway. 
It was alright. Kind of a slow day, honestly. I admitted. I don't think many people would want to buy the house if they knew what happened in it. You're probably right. He agreed. Mr. Williams seems to have a lot of hope for it, though, despite all the history. He's always been like that. I replied. I sighed, thinking back to that dreaded garage. I honestly don't know why Ken bought something with such a grisly past. And that poor woman. I brought a hand to my forehead, appreciating the cooler temperature. I feel so bad for her, but I just don't understand her. I mean, she wanted to go back to him for heaven's sake. After everything he did to her, how could she do that? Carl nodded grimly. I guess it was all the brainwashing. He had her convinced she couldn't live without him. I shook my head, watching the landscape go by. (laughs) Couldn't be me. last story of the evening is from a new author to the show, Heinrich von Wolfcastle, and this is A Scream Before Dawn. Mildred had been confined to her bedroom, immobile, for several weeks. She was alone and positioned to look out the window. She had no television, but watching the children play their games in the spring weather kept her mind from roaming too far. On her last day, a Sunday, the neighborhood boys and girls worked a pair of lemonade stands across the street. Towards the end, all she wished for was to open the window to feel some fresh air anything other than the scent of must building on her and her patterned bedsheets. She couldn't express that wish in words, but I knew. Anything she ever wanted, I always knew. That clouded window was all that Mildred had to keep her busy. It may as well have been a television, given the way the dust hovered in the air like the static from a poorly tuned station. A shame that such a beautiful creature should meet its demise in such an unceremonious place. A woman can go to church her whole life on a Sunday without ever considering that it could be her death day. And how many times did we walk through a calendar year never knowing which day would be her final one? The day matters, you see, because on most days, a nurse would be there with her. But Sunday was not a scheduled day. It was the nurse's church day. It was of no worry to Mildred, though. She had been feeling stronger as of late. By the end of her life, we had come into a routine of sorts. Around mid-afternoon, Mildred would drift off into a light sleep, nothing restful, more like a tease of what restful sleep might be like, 
and as she started to nap, I would close my eyes too, following thoughts about the way things used to be. Mother was never told to expect a girl, and she was bewildered in her effort to raise twins by herself. And father was a label no man earned from us beyond biology. Perhaps it was for this reason, and in combination with the shame of having children out of wedlock, that few people knew of Mildred or me. Childhood certainly had its challenges for the two of us, including repeated meetings with Mother's Paddle. For these reasons, and others, we confided in one another, and no one else. We played well together, and our dolls lived full lives under our care. When we outgrew our dolls, we took to writing, creating theatrical scripts and elaborate narratives for our playthings. Mother disapproved, but we persisted in spite of her. Eventually, we reached local fame for our ability with improvisation. The true secret, the true secret, is that we knew one another's thoughts. Mildred would sit on our stoop and wait for a wealthy-looking man or woman to walk by. She would call out, No secrets are safe! For a coin, I can tell you your phone number, just by knowing your name. A precocious little girl like her earned the attention of many passers-by. They would approach with a scoff on their face. But once she heard their name, it was as if I heard their name too. Only, I was tucked away, back in our bedroom, with the telephone directory. And when I knew a phone number, Mildred knew it too. Wondering how we afforded our dolls, Mother would inspect our purses and find them filled with coin. When she learned the secrets of our trade, she brought her paddle to our behinds and cursed at us. She who sups with the devil should have a long spoon. As we grew older, potential lovers would talk to us of soulmates, but the discussion was futile. Mildred had me, and I had her. We had already found our other halves, you see? Alas, what was to be our life together was taken from us. Mother's body was found some months after her life had ended. I had gone to the market to purchase fabric for costumes for our new play we were creating. Meanwhile, Mildred was in our bedroom reviewing our writing when Mother, perhaps mistaking her for me, or drunk from wine at the local church, thought to take the paddle to her for the second time of the day. In a fit of defiance, Mildred moved from Mother's swing and grabbed the paddle from her hand. You slag! You fucking dog! Mother screamed at her. A slag! Am I, Mother? Mildred returned. A slag! A wench! A shame I brought you into this world. Isn't it? Mother yelled, 
reaching for the paddle. Without a retort, Mildred brought the paddle down on Mother's head, announcing a thud and cracking her skull. What was once a tool for punishment became lethal when turned on its side to strike with its dense edge. Mother's body fell to the ground in a pool of its own fluids, which was where it remained until the bobbies came in response to a call regarding the smell of decomposition coming from our flat. Yes, I was away when Mildred brought the paddle down upon Mother, but the same way that Mildred and I know one another's thoughts is the same way we brought the paddle down over her head. We brought it down again and again and again. When the bobbies came, I was home and Mildred was at the market. As such, Mildred lived a full life, free to travel and create. I could not have been more excited for her, as her life and her work were my life and my work too, you see. I saw life through her eyes, while my own eyes stared blankly at institution walls. Mildred had a mad creative rage, an art that demanded expression. On occasion, as her eyes, I had the privilege of watching her create her art, building on the portfolio that started with Mother. It was a sight to see, and a rhythm to dance to. Sometimes Mildred would invite me to share the paddle as she brought it down on the heads of gentlemen callers. But I was not a musician the way that she was. I would hesitate in the swing, which altered the timing of it all. For me, the pleasure was in the sound she made with it. I suppose the thudding was like an anniversary song that honored Mother's passing. For each time it played, it never lost its appeal, or that hypnotic grip that commanded me to move to its rhythm. In her later years, with her health difficulties, it was a song I longed to hear, while Mildred remained bedridden. On her final Sunday, Mildred awoke from a light afternoon nap and threw steel bars and concrete across miles of ocean. I awoke with her. It was the sound of breaking glass and a doorknob rattling from the kitchen that spurred our attention. I sat in my hospital bed, listening through Mildred's ears. Footsteps. Heavy shoes, two sets of them, paced up and down the hall of Mildred's home. A kitchen cabinet door swung open and slammed shut. 
A bathroom door opened and crashed into the wall. Bathroom cabinets and drawers were emptied. Where the fuck is it, man? One voice called out. He sounded like a teenage boy. I don't know. Maybe in her room? Another voice answered. You're sure this bitch is comatose, right? The first one asked. Yeah, man. She might even be dead. Just lazier all day. The second one answered. Just trust me. There's a couple of nurses that come by during the week, but that's it. He assured. Their shoes made their way towards Mildred's bedroom. What kind of shift do you think they have her on? The first one asked. Oxy, at least. The second voice answered. The door to Mildred's bedroom was open. Footsteps approached on the carpet of her room. It smells like death in here, the first one said. He walked across the room and stood at the foot of Mildred's bed, pausing to glance at her. He looked to be about six feet tall, gangly in his growing body. He had blonde hair that crept out from under a red hat. The sun reflected off the gold-plated chain, laying over his black shirt which strained Mildred's eyes. You awake, lady? He asked. Mildred said nothing. Dude, don't talk to her, the second one said. The second one was shorter and had spiked black hair. A tattoo of something ran down the back right side of his neck. Where's your pills, old lady? Mildred said nothing. Don't talk to her, Neck Tattoo said with annoyance. He pushed his friend on his way towards Mildred's bathroom. She's looking at me, Red Hat said. He leaned forward and squinted at Mildred. Dude, shut up. I got him. Let's get out of here. Neck Tattoo called back. Man, I don't think she's in a coma. She's looking at me, Red Hat repeated. Let's just get the hell out, Neck Tattoo said. His footsteps echoed as he made his way down the hall. Man, she can ID us, Red Hat said under his breath. More to himself than to his friend who had already left. Mildred said nothing. Red Hat leaned in close and squinted at her again. Then he scanned the room to assess the equipment around him. Sweat pooled atop his upper lip. He looked out the window where kids played and then back at Mildred. He leaned in one last time, put his hand to her throat, pulled something from her, and then ran from the room and out of the house. Mildred's ventilator sounded an alarm, and she began to suffocate. The ventilator appeared to still be working, but it was undeniably getting harder for Mildred to breathe. In fact, the more she focused on her breathing, the more difficult it became. 
As Mildred gasped for air, I raised her arms to reach for something, anything. In a panic-induced daze, I brought her hands to her throat as if I could remove some invisible assailant's grip, but there was nothing to be removed. Her eyes rolled frantically around the room, dizzying me as her lungs failed to inflate. While straining for oxygen, Mildred reached down and pushed off of her bed in an attempt to sit up, her lips mouthing the words to some final plea. A sharp, high-pitched whistle cut through the room. And then, all sound stopped. The dust that surrounded her froze in position. Outside, the girl's jumping rope slowed to a halt, leaving the jumper hovering in midair. Slowly, Mildred's hands and legs faded away, and everything became warm. Outside, mothers smiled at their children as Mildred waved her arms about. If she could borrow just one breath from these kids, she thought, just one of their laughs that seemed to roll out of their mouths with such ease, then she might be all right. Alas, she fell back into her pillows and allowed the growing calm to consume her. Part 2 In the wake of Mildred's dying breath, I was alone for the first time. The institution released me some weeks later, fitting somehow that I would finally return to the world to take Mildred's place after I was locked away for so long for mother's murder. But to not be fooled, there is no greater peace being held hostage in a mental institution in lieu of a prison. The horrors the residents and I experienced in their care were greater than any deed that brought us there. The violence we endured will echo those halls for all eternity. Patients deemed too unsafe for the doctors to work with had their hands and feet bound and secured to adult-sized cribs. If not bound to a crib, then they would lock us away in an isolation chamber for days at a time, where we would shit ourselves and scream at the walls. But somehow, that was safest. You did not want a doctor's attention, you see. Because if you had their attention, then you might get injected with some drug that puts you to sleep and leaves you feeling like your body is going to fall out of its skin. If they wanted you awake, they would hold you down and strap you to a table to electrocute you. Then there was the lobotomy. Those who were lobotomized became shuffling, drooling zombies. 
perhaps the worst form of the doctor's attention was their taking advantage of us sexually. The acts they inflicted upon us were terrible. Whether forced or manipulated did not matter. It was all horrific. Even worse than enduring the deeds performed were the moments afterwards when your body feels foreign and shameful to you as if it betrayed you by somehow bringing about what happened. Many times afterwards, I disappeared into Mildred for a comfort while she dressed me and soothed me, bringing my arms over my chest in a hug. I knew it was her in my arms, embracing me. That kind of abuse stopped when Mildred took it upon herself to resolve the issue with one doctor in particular. You might ask how Mildred could use my body to make her music in the hospital without her paddle, but her art came naturally to her. Her work with the doctor was an answer to a question I once posed to her. What if a song were made to be a painting instead? The piece was so compelling in its use of color and abstraction that no one in the hospital dared to accuse any patient of the murder. Mildred always seemed to escape the blame that might follow her deeds and I consider myself fortunate that her grace extended to me. Had I not had my connection to Mildred, our bond, I suppose I would have hanged myself, as so many others had. Even after my release from the institution, thoughts of death followed me. For what was I without my sister? Alas, first there was business to attend to. My first act of freedom was to move my belongings to Mildred's home in the States. A camaraderie we shared all our lives was not absent in her death, and I thought I might find her there. What I found instead was that the house was going to be reclaimed by the bank and was in a condition of deterioration. The destroyed glass at the side door was tracked throughout the home in trails of repeated footprints. The flickering hallway light revealed garbage and beer cans and cigarette butts burned into the carpet. Mildred's room was empty, except for a stained mattress in the corner of the room. A dirty syringe rested upon it. If there were any blessing resultant of my institutionalized years, it was in the gained practice of waiting. In Mildred's room, I stood and waited for minutes, for hours, for days. Part 3
The side door swings open, and glass crunches under the pressing of stepping shoes. There is the sound of shuffling and faint laughter, and then more footsteps. They make their way through the hallway. Four sets of shoes bringing dirt into Mildred's home. It is dark when they arrive in the bedroom. First, the tall blonde boy with the red hat appears, his arm around a young girl with a bob of black hair. God, Frank, you're such a creep, she says. You like it, Red Hat replies with slurred speech. The girl slips into the bathroom while the other two sets of feet settle in the hallway. Red Hat flicks his lighter at a cigarette hanging from his mouth and lights the room. He catches a glimpse of my face and startles himself, falling backwards into the wall. The unlit cigarette clings to his dry lips. The fuck, Frank? Be patient. The girl calls from the bathroom. A stream of urine splatters into the empty toilet. You're dead. Red Hat yells. I say nothing. You're dead, bitch. He says again. Frank, who are you talking to? The girl calls, stumbling back into the bedroom. Her eyes meet mine. Oh, shit. She yells. I'm too stoned for this. She falls out of the room, stumbling into the couple in the hall. God, Jen, watch it. Neck tattoo jeers. Come on, we're out of here. The girl says, her footsteps echoing with another pair of legs as they run out of the house. What's wrong with your girl? Neck tattoo asks as he enters the room. He catches a glimpse of me and topples into Red Hat. Both boys press their backs against the wall and slide down to their asses in fear. Red Hat flicks his lighter again and holds it at arm's length, pointing it at me like a weaponized crucifix. You're not real, man. You're not real. Neck tattoo mutters. I say nothing. Listen, lady. We didn't mean nothing. It was an accident. It was all an accident. Red Hat yells from behind his lighter. His words are slurred. I hold my silence. You're not real. You're not real, man. Neck Tattoo says again, fumbling his way back onto his feet. I move towards him with the syringe from the bed in my hand. You're not real. Neck Tattoo repeats, this time beginning to cry. Red Hat, meanwhile, crawls backwards with wide eyes into the corner of the room and onto the mattress. I approach Neck Tattoo. 
placing my left hand over his mouth and bringing the syringe to his left eye. He lets out a muffled scream from under my hand and I press it through his eye and into his brain. He falls to the ground moaning like a zombie and Red Hat begins to scream. When most people are about to endure something terrible, they release several short screams. They scream in succession as if they mean to say words but can't find them. Not Red Hat. Red Hat just lets out one long howl as I make my way towards him. Of all the personal belongings left behind in Mildred's home, the most important of them is Mother's Paddle. Its weight and heft feel good in my hand. I raise it in the air and pause in triumph before bringing it down on Red Hat's head. But revenge is not swift. It is long and bittersweet. Red Hat's hands deflect my first strikes, knocking his fingers in different permanent directions. His defense spurs me to doubt my ability to make it past his waving arms. I almost wonder if I can finish the job. But it is then, in the moment of my hesitation, paddle raised and ready, that she comes back to me. Beyond miles upon miles of ocean and worlds apart, her hand is my hand, and my hand is hers once more. Together, we bring the paddle down, mashing his hair into the fragments of his skull and brain, sounding the beat of that glorious bloated thud that only Mildred knows how to play and I dance again thanks for listening Real quick, before I get into the shoutouts, I put up a new episode on Patreon, but it's not a scare you to sleep episode. My husband and I are trying out our own little LA history podcast, so I put the first episode for all my Patreon patrons to listen to. It's much more jovial and loosey-goosey than scare you to sleep, but if you like history and hearing people chat and have a good time, then check it out. It's just something we're doing for fun. We both absolutely adore LA history. We both bonded over it when we were first dating, and so we just thought it'd be fun to talk about, and I've learned a lot already. Remember, for only $1, you can have access to my whole Patreon backlog of bonus content. The new podcast isn't available anywhere else. Oop, I just hit my microphone. (laughs) Anywhere else on the internet currently, by the way. It's not available anywhere. It's exclusive, very exclusive. Um, this leads me to Patreon shoutouts. You guys, you remember how I said that I'm always kind of messed up when I don't have a script? I have a script in front of me today and I'm still messing up. So it's just one of those days. So (laughs) a huge thank you to Judith Nasula, 
Noah, Elena Absher, Amanda Banks, Wicked Dawn, Courtney James, and Melly. Thank you so much. I'm sending you a huge, huge hug over the airwaves. Welcome to the family. Also, you can join the Facebook group, follow the show on Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit, and Instagram, and remember, come hang out for the the Let's Not Meet live stream on Sunday, May 24th at 7pm Pacific Standard Time on Twitch. I will leave the link in the show notes, and I also posted a link in the Facebook group. So it's on Twitch, May 24th, 7pm Pacific Standard Time. You can send all your submissions to scarytosleep at gmail.com or use the contact form at scarytosleep.com where you can also find my P.O. box. And I got two very nice things in my P.O. box recently. I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, but Jenny Waters sent me both a book and a beautiful card. The book was beautiful too. Thank you so much, Jenny. And I also got a postcard from my buddies over at the 13 podcast. I love those folks so much. Go check out 13. I even cameoed recently, and I might be on it again in the future if you get my drift. Um, I also got some fun little things that were sewn for me by a listener who I believe wants to remain anonymous. You know who you are, though, and they're so cool. And I'm going to be doing a giveaway soon. They're like keychains and tote bags and pin cushions that she hand embroidered my logo onto. And I am so over the moon about it. I honestly don't want to give any of them away, but I don't need multiple pin cushions considering I don't even sew at all. So look for that giveaway on all the socials soon. I'll probably do them like category by category. That way people like me who don't sew end up like don't end up with a pin cushion. Thank you, neighbor, for honking. Uh, That was great. Anyway, (laughs) go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.